When I was here last, I uh, spoke somewhat at length about the uh, topic of sexual sins, going through Paul's sin list. And uh, one of the scriptures that was in the discussion uh, really just grabbed me and, and wouldn't let go. And I kept thinking about it, and it just seemed like something that was worthy of some more explanation. That would be Hebrews 12, from verse 14 to 16. And using that verse, I want to go through that verse and, and kind of unpack it and look at what's in there. And I think that there's some, some good stuff for us there. And I think that it shows us a process, shows us a process of going from that which is holy, it's talking about us here, from going, going from being holy to being profane. And so that is where I am going to kind of focus today's message. And I want to start off by reading this scripture. I think you'll, you'll get the drift of, of what I'm getting at. Let's just read Hebrews 12, verse 14 through 16, which says this. Okay, make every effort, and this is written to you and to me, to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless and profane like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now, I want to unpack this verse, because I think there's a lot in there, and consider how holiness can be undermined by bitterness, which leads to defilement, which comes through disobedience, and leading us into a completely different way of thinking, which is godless and profane. And profane is the word you'll see in the King James. Godless is the word that, that the uh, NIV uses. I'll get into that in a little more detail. But along the way, I'm going to do some defining. And so I've got these key words, which you've already heard me go through. Holiness, bitterness, defilement, and profaneness. And I hope to show that there's somewhat of a process going on here. Going from holiness to profaneness. And so I want to flesh out each of these concepts and show you how they interconnect. But just to kind of like wet your whistle and get you started, holiness is to be set apart for godly purpose. Bitterness is a focus on the negative, which sort of starts to eat away at your perspective. Defilement, which is caused by disobedience, and profaneness, which is not seeing a godly purpose in anything. So we go from holiness, seeing a godly purpose in what we're doing, to profaneness, which sees no purpose. That's the process, that's the journey. It's a bad journey, just so you know. It's a bad journey, you don't want to do this. So this is like a cautionary tale. And this path goes from holy to profane. A path from a life with purpose, to a life that sees no purpose. So let's get started. Holiness, let's start there. Holiness is about purpose. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Well, holiness is one of those words that has a fair amount of, of baggage with it, okay? I was at a family gathering, and this was a while ago, and, and there were other people outside the family there, and someone greeted me, and they'd heard about me, apparently, and they said, ah, you're the holy man. And I looked at him, and I thought, well, I, I knew I was being mocked, okay? I, I knew the person was mocking me. And, you know, so I was kind of like, what? What do you mean by that? But if you think about it, you know, if you, in God's eyes, what's well, kind of true of everybody, right? In everyone who's been called. But he meant something different by it, didn't he? You know, he kind of meant, well, you think you're holy. You know, you're better than us, right? And holiness is often misunderstood, or let's say holiness is often understood by people to mean without sin or flawless, okay? Um, but th that's not quite right. That's not quite right. Holiness, or to be holy, means set apart for service to God. You'll often find this same word translated as sanctified, okay? Set apart. And sometimes it just plainly says, in some places in the in scripture, same word is just said, set apart. And, you know, if you think about it, when you go back to the, the tabernacle, the temple, there were things in there like uh, pots and pans and, and, you know, altars and stuff like that that were declared holy. So it wasn't a matter of sin. It was that they were set apart for a special purpose, okay? So a person who's declared to be holy by God, doesn't, it doesn't mean that that person is, is then complete and has no further need to overcome sin. No, God's call to holiness is sort of like an intervention, if you will. God intervenes in your life and he redirects your life. He takes over, and he takes your life, and he points it in a different direction, towards a godly purpose, okay? And as part of that, you're given some, some short-term goals of obedience. You know, here's some stuff, will you do it? And then you get some mid-term goals, which would be things like overcoming, you know, some bad habits, some proclivities that you've got. And you have an end goal, which is a good end, because it's, eternal life. And this call to holiness, God's call to holiness, begins to change you. It begins to change your behavior and your character as you begin to act and to choose to live without sin. That's what a life called to holiness is, is really about. Now, in this world that we live in, in this day and age, and perhaps at all times, many people live their lives without really seeing a lot of purpose to it. I think very much so in our day and age. You know, I really can't speak for the past because I wasn't there. But I think a lot of people just say, well, it is what it is, you know? Life doesn't really have a, a big purpose. And so folks find a way to you know, manage their, their psyche and their way through life by 
perhaps pointing all their energies on something like athletics. You know, it's in our day and age, that's something people will do. They'll, they'll really get into athletics and they find a great deal of purpose in that. Or for some people it's art, you know, or music or gaining wealth, you know? But when you think of all those, they all have one thing in common, which is that you have to give them up in the end. You know, the saying, you can't take it with you. Well, you can't take it with you. And, uh, you know, for some things like athletics, you have to give it up long before you're dead. <laughs> oh, don't I know it. So, <clears throat> you have been given a goal that's better than that. You know, whereas all those other goals, you know, someone can still come out at the end of the game saying, well, what's the point? You know, what have I been doing with my life? You've been given a holy purpose, which you never will have to give up because it's eternal and it lasts and it has to do with life, life itself. God's call to holiness then, therefore, kind of allows you, allows me, to put everything that you experience into a meaningful and um, life-giving framework. So the suffering and the sickness and the trials, self-sacrifice, sometimes having people make fun of you, calling you the holy man. Maybe it's just the effort to trust and obey. All these things make sense because you see that they have purpose, because you put them into this framework of God's call to holiness. But we're warned, like we were warned in the last slide, there's, there's some stuff here that can threaten that calling, that calling to holiness. And I mentioned bitterness. Well, bitterness, negativity, well, it can cause you to lose your sense of purpose, okay? Focusing on the ne negative, you can lose your sense that this all makes sense, that this is all doing something positive. And that can cause you to say, ah, who cares? And that can lead to disobedience. And that can lead to becoming a person who is profane, who has profaned the name of God, the things of God, or as the NIV said, a godless person. So let's move on to the next section, which is bitterness. Right? We talked about holiness and this sense of purpose. What about the root of bitterness? And bitterness, bitterness is like that. It's in scripture, we read there in Hebrews, it's root. Don't let it take root in you and grow like some kind of weed that's in your garden, right? Now bitterness is, it's, it's a category of thinking. It's a category of feeling and thinking that's sharp and unpleasant, okay? And, okay, so has anyone ever taken a whiff of ammonia? Anyone, you ever had it? Okay, we've got a few. You've taken a whiff of pneumonia and what's your reaction? <laughs> right, am I right? You go, whoa, your head snaps back and you think, whoa, that's, that's what bitterness is like. Now, maybe you haven't, um, Maybe you've never smelled ammonia. So here's another one. You know when you're eating walnuts, okay? And you break the shell open and you're eating walnuts and you know, uh, sometimes there's that little part of the shell in a walnut, you know, the part that sticks between the two halves. And when you get that in your mouth and you taste it, what is your response? <clears throat> right? Because it's bitter. 
It's sharp, it's unpleasant, it's bitter. Okay, I hope between ammonia and walnuts I've hit everybody here. But you know what I'm saying? It's like you have this, you, you, you almost can't control it. It's like, <laughs> you just respond to it. Um, now, if we take that concept into the realm of the mind, so we're not talking about our noses or our, our tongues here. If we take that into you know, the mind and, and what's going on up there, there are three categories that I think are worthy of our consideration. Envy, okay? Envying what others have. And then complaining, you know? Always airing our grievances and saying, ah, this is just really bothersome. And always focusing on the negative things about our lot, you know? What we've been dealt with, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And the third is cursing, cursing. Just saying, ah, had it with this. Calling forth some sort of supernatural wrath on the whole business or on another person. So we'll go to Acts 8. Go to Acts 8. And let's take a look at some places where bitterness is, is used to describe a, a person. Here's one. Uh, Acts 8. Verse 22, and this is breaking into the middle of a, a longer sequence here, talking about uh, this guy who uh, is Simon the Sorcerer, or Simon Magus, Simon the Great, as he was known. Simon the Great, okay? And uh, so he had this interaction with Peter, and Peter said something to him, kind of looked him in the eye and took a read on his soul, and he said this to him. Um, Verse 22, he said, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now, you can go back and read the story, okay? But I'm going to summarize it for you. This guy, Simon, he was great among the people because he was a sorcerer and he could do tricks. And the crowds would gather around him, and I'm sure it was quite lucrative for him, but he probably also liked the, the, you know, the way people talked to him and felt about him. And then Philip shows up, and the Holy Spirit's working in him, and then Peter and John show up, and the Holy Spirit's working within them, and the crowds kind of move away from Simon, and they, they go over to the men who are filled with God's Holy Spirit, and Simon says, he sees this, and I think you know, I don't want to put too many words in his, in, in, in his mouth, but I think he was jealous. He was envious. Oh, what have they got that I haven't got? Well, he saw that it was the Holy Spirit, right? And he offered to buy it. He said, hey, you know what? Can I buy that? Because that's, that's good stuff. <laughs> you know, I like what I'm seeing. If I had that, boy. And Peter says, you know, fooey on you. And he called him bitter because he envied. He envied what they had. And he really wasn't looking at the, you know, the substance of it. Um, go to James 3. So envying what other people have is a way to become bitter. Uh, James 3, verse 9 through 16. Uh, a couple of times ago, I talked about the sins of the tongue, remember? And I went through all the sins of the tongue. And uh, we didn't really spend a lot of time in James 3. We could have. We could have talked about it, you know, quite a bit because James talks about it quite a bit. So he's talking about the tongue and, and how, you know, 
it can really stir up a lot of trouble and we need to be on top of it. And then he says, okay, with the tongue, with this same tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with that same tongue, we curse our fellow human beings who have been made in God's likeness. And out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, you know, fellow church members, this shouldn't be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Brothers, sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. So here we've got selfish ambition, which is Kind of another way of saying envy. I want this. I want, you know, that person has it. I want it. I should be the one who everybody's looking to. And cursing. We see the two put together here when James is talking about this bitterness, okay? Bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Notice that it's put together with this, you know, cursing of other people. I won't turn there, but Ephesians 4 verse 31 associates bitterness with rage and anger where you, you know, you, you, you can take envy and you can kind of get mad. Well, I should have that. I deserve that. You can get mad. You can get angry. Well, why haven't things worked out so that I'm the one who's, you know, loved by the crowds or whatever it is, okay? Um, now, let's talk about complaining. When you get into the vocabulary of the Bible, you know? And, and when I say that, you know, there are just certain things in Scripture that they mean more than just one thing, right? Um, bitterness is one of those. In Bible speak, bitterness is meant to take you back to the bitter waters of Merah. I mean, why else would you associate bitterness, you know, this whiff of ammonia or walnut seeds with things like envying, complaining, or cursing. Go back to the waters of Mara with me. Exodus 15. Because that's how the Bible works. It uses these little clues and it says, okay, this is telling you to go back to this particular instance. The bitter waters of Mara. Exodus 15, verse 22. So they've, they've you know, come through the Red Sea and they're uh, there in the wilderness. And uh, they're in that little, you know, peninsula between Egypt and uh, Saudi Arabia. And they're uh, at this place called Mara. Verse 22 says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. And that's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we going to drink? And then after Marah, they traveled to a place called Elim, where they complained about the food. <laughs> and you can read about that in Exodus 16, 
uh, verse 2 through 5. So just drop down a few verses and it says, Okay, the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and they came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to him, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Then we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Well, look, um, requesting food and water isn't a bad thing, is it? No, it's not. What was wrong was the attitude. The way they went about it, the attitude is bad. Because they're looking back longingly or enviously, if you will, at the delicious foods that they enjoyed in Egypt. Okay? And they complained. You know, what is going on here? We haven't got any food or water. And in some ways you could say they sort of cursed out Moses. Why have you brought us out here? You kind of see all three elements here in this situation. There's envying, complaining, cursing, while they're at the bitter waters. And that's where the association comes from. And I believe that the bitter water of Merah is now forever associated in Scripture with complaining and envying and cursing. A bitterness of spirit. Now if you think, okay, well, you might think, well, that's them. I mean, if I was out in the desert, I would be way better. Right? You ever think that? I wouldn't make the same mistakes as Israel did. So what would a totally, like, focused, spiritual perspective on this be? Okay? Um, you know, okay, here you are. Well, you know, Yahweh has, he has par just parted the waters of the Red Sea, and I have personally walked through them, and I have seen all these incredible miracles in Egypt. So now here I find myself plopped down in this wilderness and there's no food and there's no water. I can hardly wait to see what he's gonna do next. Now that would be a good response, right? Right? But, that, but that'd be kind of hard to pull off, wouldn't it? When you're hungry and when you're thirsty and what happened was, instead, Israel complained and they got angry and um, they envied the good things they had before. Well, God had brought them into this whole calling out of Egypt to become a holy nation. He called them to holiness. And they, were, they, got, they had a root of bitterness. And it, they lost the vision of what God was up to. And that was kind of the plan. God knew that. Go to Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 through 5, which says this. Okay, Israel, remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the wilderness, wilderness these 40 years. So this would be the, you know, after the 40 years of wandering, looking back and saying, remember, remember how God did this. Why? To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And he humbled you, and he caused you to hunger. Wow. He really, hmm, 
He led us into a place where we would get hungry. And then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And he did this to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. So know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So God's perspective on the whole sequence of events was very different because he was looking at it from a perspective of training. He was disciplining them and he was training them and he had this perspective, okay? Bitterness can take root when we lose sight of the great purpose of what we are enduring. When all we can see is the pain or the social stigma or the fear, well, we can become angry and we can become frustrated, filled with complaints and grievances, which can lead us to disobedience because we don't see the point of obedience anymore because we've lost the vision. We've lost the concept of our calling to something holy. Go to Hebrews 12. So that's, that's back where we started from, Hebrews 12. And let's take a look at the context. So I, I read what I did about being called to holiness and how we can uh, become bitter and defile ourselves and then end up godless and profane like Esau. But what leads up to that? Well, if you look at what leads up to that, it's all about the discipline of God. And I think there's a connection between the bitterness that can grow in us and not understanding the discipline of God. Go to verse 5 and 6. And uh, it says, Have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? And it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart. Don't lose that sense of purpose when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as son. Now drop down to verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Maybe it's like a whiff of pneumonia. Ammonia, sorry. You know, ugh. Or maybe a walnut, okay? Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Because that's the call, that's the, the path to holiness. Or the calling to holiness, I should say. If we focus on the unpleasantness of God's discipline, we can become bitter. So let's go to the next stage of our little process. Defilement. And defilement comes through disobedience. Through disobedience, okay? Israel complained about the water and the food. And that is a whole section of Scripture that covers the latter part of Exodus 15 through, Exodus, uh, yeah, through Exodus 17, okay? So they're there at the waters of Merah, and then they go to Elim, and then they end up in uh, this other place called Raphim, and they complain some more. So it goes from complaining to complaining to complaining. And what's interesting, if you go through this whole section from Exodus 15 to 17, and I encourage you to do this, nestled in the middle is a very important example of obedience, or, or sorry, 
disobedience. And the two are connected. The two are connected. Now you might think, okay, he's going to go to Exodus and we're going to look through all that. But no, what we're going to do is we're going to go to Hebrews 3. Back up a few chapters in Hebrews 3. Because it summarizes the whole thing down nicely. And if you pick up with me in verse 12, it says this. See to it then, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another. So kind of getting away from that, you know, don't let yourself be discouraged, bitter. Encourage one another. You need each other. Do it daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. And just as been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Now that's a quote from Psalm 95, which is referring to that whole sequence from Exodus 15 through 17, the days of rebellion and um, quarreling, rebellion and quarreling, okay? That's what it's referring to. Now going on, it says this. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those who Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was not it, those, was not it with those who had sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So again, that idea of falling short, okay? As I mentioned, the rebellion here is a quote from Psalm 95, and it refers to the quarreling and strife over food and water on the journey from Merah to Elim to Sin to Rephidim. Okay? And Israel didn't lose out because they messed up once. It was a pattern. So you see this pattern. Okay? They repeatedly complained, and they, they didn't trust God. You know? They didn't trust Him from moment to moment. He'd, oh, he just let them through the Red Sea, and, you know, within days, they were complaining. They didn't trust him. And that lack of trust led to disobedience. Bitterness is one thing. And I think the real, real danger of bitterness, I mean, I don't think God likes bitterness, but the real danger of bitterness is that it leads us to disobedience. Because we don't trust. And so they were uh, camped out in the desert of sin, and they, they refused to obey God's command to rest on the seventh day. If you read, they're wedged in between these complaining about food and drink. There's this section where God explains through Moses, okay, I want you to do something. And he gives them some simple instructions about, okay, you're going to go out and you're going to gather manna six days a week, but not on the seventh day. Okay? So it was right there. And what happened the very first Sabbath? Some people disobeyed, you know? 
And they said, no, 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 I gotta go out and get my sticks. I gotta have enough sticks, right? So they went out and they were gathering wood on the Sabbath. And no, they were disobeying and God was very displeased with them. What was going on? Well, God had set something aside as holy, right? And they treated it just like it was any other day. Just like all the other six days, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna gather my wood, okay? Instead of a day that was holy and set apart by God. So that gets us to this concept of defilement. So to defile a thing is to take something that's holy and treat it as if it were something common. Okay? That's defilement. A little different from sin. I mean, I think that they're, they overlap a great deal. But defilement is about taking something that has been made holy by God and treating it as if it were something common. No big deal, okay? Of no special value. Yours to do with as you please. Now that command to rest on the seventh day remains today as a test of obedience for the present day people of God. Go down to, uh, just skip a few verses. We're in Hebrews 4. Drop down to verse 9, where it says, Okay, we've said all this, talked about Israel's experience in the desert and their disobedience. Verse 9 says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A sabbatismos. Okay? If you have a King James, it probably says just rest, but it is a Sabbath rest. That's what it says. For the people of God, for the church of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. It's talking about the Sabbath. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And he's talking about their example of disobedience in the wilderness and their refusal to treat the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, is holy. And if you think about it this way, keeping the Sabbath holy is part of the discipline of God. It's one of the ways that He uses to discipline us. And, you know, a lot of times we try to focus on all the positive things of the Sabbath. And you've probably heard sermons about well, here are the blessings of the Sabbath. And well, the Sabbath is great because of this. And I'm sure that you all enjoy the Sabbath. You know, this, the Sabbath does have a lot of really great things. It, it's a day of rest. And you think, oh man, <laughs> I don't have to work. I, and I, you know, God's given me a day off. I don't really have to worry about it. I can, you know, I can relax. I can, you know, take it easy. I don't have to work. I kind of have a day off of, of stress. But Sabbath keeping... Um, actually also requires sacrifices, you know, and things that we might find unpleasant. It can cause problems with our family, it can cause problems with their job, and it can cause social stigma, it can, you know, stir up some unpleasantness in our lives. And that can become a root of bitterness if you focus on it. If you focus on all the negatives, it can become a root of bitterness. Oh, I, I, oh if only I didn't. Oh, it was better when I didn't have to do this. Remember, I could, you know, I used to be able to go out and party on Friday night. Oh, I used to have so much fun. You could get bitter. 
you can become bitter. But don't let that become a root of bitterness. And that test is still out there for the people of God. That's part of the discipline of God. Don't lose your sense of purpose, your calling to holiness. And don't fall into disobedience. Okay. The waters of Mara. Let's move on. Making life choices. Now, when I talked about defilement, obviously there's more going on there. If you go back to the Old Testament and you think about defilement, well, defilement uh, came through exposing the holy things to um, something that sort of contaminated them. Like something that was dead, something that's sick, uh, categories of animals that were declared to be unclean by God, and with sexual activity. These are the things that could defile something, okay? Render it uh, un not suitable to be used in the service of God in the temple. And then in the New Testament, defilement is kind of ratcheted up to a new, next new level where it becomes more of an ethical and a moral consideration where defilement comes from within because, of course, the, now the temple of God is the believer. And so defilement comes from evil words, evil thoughts, evil deeds, sin, false doctrine, and sexual immorality. Now go to Hebrews 12 again, where we started off. And in verse 16 it says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless and profane like Esau. Wow. So here's Esau. And you know how some people are pulled out of you know, time and history and used by God to exemplify this or that. And here's Esau. He's basically the poster boy for godlessness and being profane. You know? Um, wow. That's bad. And I, you know, I don't think, I mean, I think he earned it. But still, how would you like to go down in all time as being the, uh, you know, the poster boy for unholiness? No, not so good. And I don't actually think it was because Esau was especially sinful. I don't think that's actually why. I think it was because he was exceptionally indifferent. He didn't really care. He didn't see anything special about some future promise of God, you know, his inheritance blessings. He didn't consider the inheritance of the uh, covenant with Abraham as to be anything special. Instead, it was a common thing. It's no big deal. You know, he comes in from the field. He's hungry. He's tired. He's sweaty. And he wants some food. And he, you know, he wants a bowl of soup. And he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup. What, what good is this airy-fairy idea of me having some you know, covenant blessing, what good is that to me when I'm hungry? He didn't see it as anything special or set apart or any kind of a holy calling. It was just no big deal, right? And you know, God didn't like that. He didn't like it at all. What's interesting is that Esau is also linked to sexual immorality. So this, this you know, not caring is also linked to sexual immorality. Well, let's, let's, let's dig in on that, okay? Just a little bit with Esau. We don't have a lot of details about Esau and his life. We, we know a little bit. You know, Scripture works that way. It doesn't give us a 600-page biography of, of any person 
in the Bible. We get a few little nuggets, and we're supposed to figure things out from the nuggets we get. And I think that that is something that we are supposed to do. Let's take a look at Esau. So what, what we do know about him is he took two wives at the same time. Oh, that might be something, right? He takes these two women as wives at the same time, which is not pleasing to God. And it didn't, wasn't pleasing to his father, Isaac. But if you think about it, his brother Jacob, the golden boy, went out and did the same thing with Leah and Rachel, right? So that can't be it. Can't be What else might be buried in this little detail? Go to Genesis 26. Because those little details are there for a reason. And so here's a little nugget about Esau. It says, when Esau was 40 years old. Oh, I'll, I'll give you some time. I hear the papers. I hear the pages shuffling. <clears throat> All you people on tablets will just have to wait for us. Okay, so it says, uh, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Bari, the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, what's notable about these two women is that they were both Hittites. A little detail. And that was a problem because the Hittites, it's not because you know, they were lesser beings or you know, some, some other thing like that. It was, it was because the Hittites were part of the people of Canaan that God was going to drive out so that he could give the land to Abraham. And he didn't want them, and even, you know, in the days of Abraham, he didn't want them marrying into these people. He wanted them to stay separate. These people are going to be condemned and driven out of the land. You, you just, you stay apart from these people. And if you think about it, you know, they went to great, Abraham went to great pains to find a wife for Isaac, and, you know, Jacob was sent away, go find a woman, and they sent him back to the homeland to Mesopotamia, so they could find a woman who was not a Canaanite. But Esau, didn't care. Didn't care. He found a couple of girls that he liked and he just went and married them. Right? You know, he knew the family. He knew what the family was all about. He knew the family's priorities. And, you know, the family had gone to great pains to find wives for their sons back in Mesopotamia. But uh, Esau didn't care. It didn't matter to him. You know, conforming his choice of sexual partner with God's unfolding plan of creating a holy people and a holy nation was not important. And it didn't drive the choices that he made in life. And so Esau is called a godless and profane man. I put it to you, it's because he didn't care. He didn't see the purpose in what God was doing. He un maybe he understood it intellectually, but he didn't care. So he's called a profane man, a profane person. This is sort of the end of our process here, where we go from holiness, you know, and then, then, then bitterness takes root, leading to disobedience and defilement. And we could end up being a profane person, a godless person. Hmm. Now, when, when something was designated as holy, 
it can be defiled. Okay? When something that was designated as holy is defiled, then it's considered profane. Which means, uh, the word profane is interesting if you look it up in uh, you know, the original language there in, in the Greek there when we're talking about Esau. Profane, the word means to trample on, to walk on it. Literally, it means like the threshold of a doorway where people walk through it all the time. Okay, so it means permitted to be walked on, uh, accessible to all, for common use, not holy, and not set apart for special use or service to God, right? And here's Esau, and we've got these examples from him. He didn't consider his birthright as the firstborn to be any, of any significance when he's hungry and tired. It was no more important than a bowl of soup. Very materialist way of looking at things. The bowl of soup is real. The promises, eh. Esau didn't consider his sex life to be of any particular significance in God's plan. And when he found some girls he liked, he just he went for it, right? And in the same way, we can act in a profane way when we approach the things of God and don't consider holiness. So I want to take a look at three examples of acting in a profane manner. Okay? And profaning God's name is one. Profaning God's Sabbath is the second, and profaning sex is the third. So you can see they line up there with the commandments, all right? The third commandment, the fourth commandment, the seventh commandment. So I want to look at them in that sort of a structure, okay? So the third commandment. Well, the third commandment is what? Do not use God's name in a profane manner. Don't use God's name in a way that's, you know, vain or empty or stupid or insulting and so forth, okay? Using it for a, a common purpose, using, you know, like it's just some common thing. And, you know, the, you know what I'm talking about and, you know, a lot of people will do this. They'll throw God's name around very, very casually and they'll use it. Some people use it all the time. You know, <laughs> like every fourth word they say is OMG. And, uh, you know, when you might have relatives like I have who you know, get together at, at a, uh, you know, family get together and hear God's name in vain all over the place just all the time. But there's more to it than that. We'll come to it. So the fourth commandment, well, the fourth commandment says what? It says, don't treat God's Sabbath in a profane manner. What are you supposed to do with God's Sabbath? Keep it. Yeah. Don't treat it in a profane manner like any other day. The seventh commandment, it says don't treat sex in a profane manner. It is set apart by God through covenant. Covenant of marriage. So God's name, let's dig in a little bit on these three. God's name. This is more than just the misuse of the letters and syllables that we use to say God. So, you know, I referred to OMG, or, uh, you know, people might say other things using God's name, and, and, and those things are wrong. But what we're looking at here is deeper than that. It is also a warning about using his reputation in an empty and insulting way. 
And a prime example of that is attaching his name and reputation to false teaching. Go with me to 1 Timothy 4 verse 7. We'll look at a couple of examples here. 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, which says, have nothing to do with godless, profane myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. So what this is talking about here, because it, it uses the word profane, godless, stories, old wives' tales. So it's talking here about attaching God's name to humanly devised religious stories and myths, which is a misuse of his name. And a primo example of that is Christmas, for example. You know, it just seems like, you know, it's not a big deal. Well, you're actually taking God's name in vain. You're profaning God's name. That's why it's just no. Okay? Go to chapter 6 in 1 Timothy. Verse 20 says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care and turn away from godless chatter, this profane talk, and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. So here we are talking about attaching God's name to our own traditions and theories. Now that could be, you know, taking on some unbiblical teaching, say about the immortal soul, you know, attaching God's name and reputation to it when God has nothing to do with it. Or it could be drawing God into discussions about materialism, you know, denying God as creator and adopting a materialist viewpoint. Godless and profane chatter. So the next one, God's Sabbath. Go to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, verse 13. It says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath. Notice, the, notice what the imagery he's using there your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. So what God's word says here is literally, don't walk all over my Sabbath. <laughs> Which takes you back to that word profane. Don't profane my Sabbaths. Don't treat them like they're a doormat. Some common thing, a day like any other day. Consider it special, dedicated to a specific purpose. Which is what? Anyone? It's a day of rest. What else? Yeah, a day of holy convocation. So we've gone through this recently. Let's go, let's just take another look at it again here. I know I did this about six months ago. Leviticus 23, verse 3. Leviticus 23, verse 3. <clears throat> I, I think a lot of folks here know this by heart. 
Good. If you don't, you should. It says, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest. But it doesn't stop there. And then it says, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. So the seventh day is not given to us so we can use it as we please. It's not your day. It is a day that is set aside for a godly purpose. Yes, it's a day of rest, but it's not a day that we should set aside so we can just sleep all day or party, you know? It is for a special purpose, a holy purpose. The holy convocation is a mikra, and the literal meaning of the word there is a public reading of scripture, which is why we do our little scripture reading now. We're doing a mikra. <laughs> so uh, the Sabbath day is a day to gather for inspired instruction. Come, my people, this day off, but I want you to come for instruction. You have plenty of time off on the Sabbath, and there's lots of good stuff, but God asks you to come for instruction. Uh, Ezekiel 20, verse 20. It says... Uh, Keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between us. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So the Sabbath is holy, and it is set apart by God as holy. And we ought to treat it as holy and not common. But also the act of keeping the Sabbath, and keeping it holy also serves as a sign of who God has made holy. So is this a sign between you and me that I am the Lord your God? And the Sabbath is very important. It is a sign of who are God's people? Who are these holy people? Who is he working through? And who is he set apart? And that's why in Hebrews 4, verse 9 through 11, it says, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the church of God. Because it's still out there as a test, you know, the discipline of God. Will you keep holy things holy? Do you understand holiness? Or will you slip into being profane and godless? So let's take a look at sexual immorality. Um, kind of talked about this a lot last time I was here. Um, there's a whole lot more to say, but I felt like it was plenty enough. <laughs> but the scriptures actually have a fair bit to say about it, so I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't apologize for that. Uh, let's see, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10 says, Okay, do you not know, read this last week, wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived then, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So the stakes are high, right? And then he goes on and saying, you know, some of you were like that, and you, you had to change. Drop down to verse 15, and then he gets into the theological reasons about it. Why is this important? He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? A, sec, you know, a, a sexual plaything that's common to all, everybody in the neighborhood? No. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in the spirit. Flee, then, sexual immorality. All the other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And you're not your own, you're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So sexual, sexual immorality is another way that we can be taking the things that God has given and using them in a way that does not recognize the holy purpose that God has in mind. Go to Hebrews again, verse thir uh, chapter 13. Verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, pure. But the word there is undefiled. So human sexuality is set apart from common use, and it's more than just another bodily appetite meant to be satisfied. It is set aside for marriage between a man and a woman entering into a covenant with their creator. And it has big meanings. You know, it's a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. It's a picture of the relationship between Christ and you. It's a big deal. And God wants you to keep it holy, undefiled. Conclusion. You've been called to holiness. You've been called to a process of being set apart for a godly purpose. Your life has been recategorized, if you will, by God and set apart to accomplish his purpose. So you can use this understanding and remind yourself of this, encourage one another. And it is a way of seeing and understanding all those trials and all those tests and the persecutions, the insults, the sacrifices as having meaning and headed towards a great goal. So don't become discouraged. And don't allow a root of bitterness to take hold in you and grow. Don't allow yourself to treat the things of God as no big deal. And don't disobey his righteous commandments. And don't give up your inheritance, but keep moving forward in God's call to holiness.